Recovery Talks, a podcast from Changing Lives. Welcome everyone and thanks for joining us for the Recovery Talks podcast. Um, So over the next 30 minutes or so we're going to be talking about all things recovery, people, health, communities Um, and I'm really looking forward to today's podcast because I think we've got three people that aren't shy of talking so this should be quite a vibrant episode moving forward and really kind of looking at joining up the dots. Hopefully you'll kind of see that as we get talking around things like stigma, community, where we're at across the world really at the minute around addiction and recovery. Um, So hopefully a nice informative podcast with some food for thought. Um, So yeah, sit back, listen. I hope you enjoy. So as mentioned, this is a Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Andy Ryan, uh, working for Changing Lives. And this week I've got three well, experts, gurus. Um, I mean, what words can I use <laughs> to, to set them up before they speak, um, to have to live up to some great billing? Um, but no, uh, really, really grateful today. Actually, uh, one of the guys on the call today, Stuart, he gave me a nudge. He said, it'd be great to get this as a podcast. So um, a big thanks for Stuart for that, because I'm really, really excited about this one. Before we move into some of the questions, the standard kind of podcast questions that we've got, uh, we'll do some introductions. So uh, David, do you want to introduce yourself to everyone listening? Yeah, uh, my name's David Best. I've got various roles. I'm really excited to be on here, Andy, because this is a, a time where I'm just about to launch the first UK Centre for Addiction Recovery Research. As far as I'm aware, I'm the first professor of addiction recovery research at Leeds Trinity University. Um, I've been around in the addictions field for pretty much exactly 30 years. I trained at the National Addiction Centre at the Maudsley. I've got honorary professor roles at the Australian National University in Canberra and the Eastern Health Clinical School at Monash University in Melbourne. But I guess probably the most relevant things for me uh, that are relevant to this is over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, I've gathered about 3000 recovery stories. And about two years ago, Stuart and I were involved in setting up the College of Lived Experience Recovery Organisations. And that's been such an exciting thing for both of us. So sorry, I've already talked too much and I was only introducing myself. That absolutely, absolutely amazing, David. What, what a kind of role of experience there. Fantastic. Anyone listening there, um, Clearo, the College for Lived Experience Recovery Organisations, you can find them on the social medias out there. I feel like I'll have to be a kind of personal index as well as we're going through maybe because there's <laughs> some great stuff that's going to get talked about. So if you are listening, you want to know more about Clearo's, get onto the social media platforms. Plenty of links on there, lots of information about that. So, yeah, great stuff. Thanks a lot, uh, David. Uh, Gord, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Gord Garner. My day job is I'm the Vice President of Strategic Partnerships at the Community Addiction Peer Support Association. I'm a national thought leader here in Canada and elsewhere on the idea of substance use health and uh, the idea that it's more than just people with substance use disorders. It's a spectrum of substance use. And the more we talk about people's health and their substance use, the easier it will be for people to talk about their serious problems because it'll be a more naturalized conversation. We're launching our first ever Working on Wellness Festival on Friday, which is bringing substance use health, mental health, and physical health under the same tent, just like we're a whole people, uh, and that all these things impact our wellness. And I think we're going to talk about some very important things today together. And um, the verbosity of the three of us in there, <laughs> please hang in there, folks. There's some nuggets going to come out from David and Stuart that uh, I know is going to be bring value to your lives. 
that, that's great stuff. Uh, great stuff, Gord. And and again, um, just to kind of check that in, there's some great. I mean, I've I've seen some those those short videos that you've done online as well. Really good, really poignant, straight to the point stuff. So again, um, type type uh, Gord's name in. You'll find the stuff on on YouTube and on Facebook and and, and everywhere. Some really really good clear messaging as well, um, and some great stuff as well. I found a while back that personally helped me when I was starting to kind of formulate my thinking around stigma um, and really kind of wanting to learn more and almost the frame of reference for that as well. Really helpful, Gord. So great to see you today. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, and Stuart, the guy yeah, that so kind good. of instigated all of this, the one that said we need to do this, um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Stuart Green. I'm the service manager for Aspire, which is um, a treatment service and recovery service in Doncaster. Um, I'm just making the numbers up, Andy. I'm just here to fulfill the numbers. <laughs> now, I, I mean, on a serious note, I've, I've been working in the field since 2001. I was only thinking a couple of days ago, because where were you on 9-11? I was in rehab at that point, and I was just volunteering in my first role, having completed rehab. And I, I remember going to rehab and the key worker saying to me, you know a lot about taking drugs, but not a lot about not taking drugs. And I thought he's got a really good point there, you know, at, at that point. So I've kind of since that point made, made it my ambition to prove that I know a lot about not taking drugs now. But what's beautiful is, is that both these gentlemen on the call and yourself, uh, we, our paths have crossed multiple times over the last uh, five, ten years. We've been, I've been fortunate to present um something on stigma this year at um the, the commission for narcotics um at uh, vienna so that was online this year but it's, it's really interesting and i think stigma uh has a, a significant impact and that it actually feeds addiction i'm sure we'll come on to that for me i'm in long-term recovery um i now manage a service which i was a patient of so i'm a great believer that people got loads of assets and what's been beautiful is is the more people i meet that um, are, are like-minded in the way I think. It makes me one thing that I'm not going insane. <laughs> uh, the other bit is it, it creates opportunities and actually sort of evidence-based. I think what David said is what's been beautiful is we've been able to bring taught, lived, worked and academia together in a college and actually validate it without appearing to slap each other on the backs, but actually say, you know what, there is evidence to suggest this. So we can do we can learn by doing but equally we can also demonstrate it in the evidence so i think it's been a beautiful um dance or journey so far and i'm su super excited about today and getting there and getting this set up oh nice one thanks for that Stu. and um yeah it's always getting it's, i mean i've known you for a while now it's always great to hear you talk as well because what's never what's never waned for me is your passion for this you know i think i think you you absolutely you're one of those people that i've met that demonstrates that you know that What's the point of having a mind if you're not prepared to change it? You know, you're really flexible in like, let's have a look at this. Let's do this. But your energy around kind of recovery and understanding that and really kind of getting, getting to grips with stuff has been been really phenomenal and inspirational as well. You know, as I was developing in, in the sector, I, I know I, I met with you on a few occasions. So and before I jump on, I know we've, we've plugged a few bits, but, you know, we're recording this at the time of what will be this week, the UK recovery walk. But we've got the recovery games coming up soon. If you want to get get on social media, look at Aspire. There's lots of links on there. If you want to join in, find out a bit more about that as well. Um, an absolutely amazing event. Um, and I, when I bump into people and, and when I've been around, because I'm often that's my perception, but I bump into people and they're like, oh man, that was fab. This is amazing. You know, so it's really good. So yeah, please get, get again, get on social medias um, and look at Aspire in Doncaster to get some links to that. It's it's a fantastic event. Um, 
So to start off with then, and it, it feels like with the three of you here, there's like probably so much that we could talk about. So the challenge is probably condensing that. Um, and I, I suppose the question I wanted to, to start off the conversation with is, it's probably something that I felt in the, I sometimes feel there's an inevitability around addiction. It's almost like we need it. We need it to, to, to support systems and to have conversations about the, the systems that, that we're in. And it, and it underpins so much of like economy and stuff like that. It's just, it feels like this thing that just doesn't seem to move forward and change or, or, or do much. So part of us getting together today was to kind of use your experience really and your knowledge to pick at that and say, no, that's not true. You know, actually that's not true. This is, this is where we're at and this is what's happening. So without rolling kind of straight into that, where do you think we're at at the minute, kind of um, at a societal level, at a national level, international level, around understanding addiction and moving forward with challenging the impact that that's having on communities that we all live in? Um, massive question, lovely one to start off with. Um, and I'm not sure if someone's sitting there right now wanting to leap with abandon into that space. I, I'm gonna jump, <laughs> I'm gonna jump if that's okay. I want to jump because when we're talking about addictions, we're talking about a small percentage of the population who use substances, but we're not talking about the majority of the substance use health costs involved with substance use. And so there's this huge market segment out there of people who take substances who have long-term health outcomes that are negative and quite expensive at end of life that aren't even in the conversation. And so you realize why is because anybody who talks about their substance use in their health is immediately seen as needing to go to the far end. And there's a whole stigma piece that nobody wants to talk about it because they don't want to be attached to the far end. And so like here in Canada, 78% of people over 15 use substances, including alcohol and tobacco. So what about their health? And if they can't talk about their health and we can't educate about their health, how are we ever going to get to the those of us who truly suffer with a, with a disorder and an addiction? Um, so there's actual funding between physical health, mental health, and understanding somebody use health. We're not debating whether people take substances anymore. We're talking about their health in relation to the substance use. And of course, for someone like myself, my best health outcome is not using substances. Um, but boy, it would have been a lot easier if my doctor had said to me, How's your head doing? How's your body? Any aches and pains? And how's your substance use health? Yeah. Instead yeah. of waiting for me to qualify by self-diagnosis and desperation, there was a survey recently in the States that 33% of people asking for help were doing so that they didn't want to die. Yeah. That's a pretty high barrier before you can raise the subject of your, of your struggle. Yeah. You can't go and say, my stomach hurts. I'm not sure what's wrong. Well, geez, I'm not sure about my relationship with substances. Can I talk to somebody? I'll end there. So, so uh, just just picking that up, Gord. So, uh, are we saying that it's kind of in the shadow here? We're not talking. You know, uh, uh, what well, I think when you were talking there, what stood out to me was the mental health campaign. It's time to talk. We need yeah. to be speaking about this at a more humanistic level, as opposed to it being either crisis centric when everything's gone really wrong, or general health. How are you doing with this? You walk it back here and we can't keep all the children safe. We're not going to get food security for everybody tomorrow. We're not going to end domestic violence tomorrow. But we can begin to look at resiliency training and teaching. We begin to look at understanding what substance use is and isn't. What is healthy substance use? What, what Where it looks like a problem? And can I talk about it before 
I ever get to where I, I can't talk about it, right? The other thing is then socially, you know, we have an understanding that maybe my friend's not okay. Maybe I shouldn't be celebrating the fact they blacked out at prom, right? Maybe that's not a victory story. Maybe that's a concern. Hi, I'm a little worried about you because you don't seem to be doing this the way we are. Yeah. Without stigma, just out of care and concern, right? So uh, I, I can go on for quite a bit. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I want to be appropriate here, but, but I do believe that stigma is the biggest barrier in terms of equitable funding, in terms of people's health, and including all those folks who use substances who have long-term negative health outcomes who will never have been asked about their substance use and never be given any knowledge about the long-term impacts of their use. They're yeah. just not on the table. I, I mean, I keep my I think addiction, I think what I always find is helpful to look at it through another lens. And I think, you know, you, unfortunately, you can see people that are probably predisposed to uh, compulsive behaviours. And I think there's a lot of people that take psychoactive substances relatively safely. Yes, it, it's hazardous to the health, and but you usually don't get stuck. I think when you're predisposed, that's when addiction starts to do it. And it's interesting what Gord said about not wanting to die, because I think that was one of my main drivers about coming into recovery. And, and I think that's part of it is hope and belief that there is something better than what's actually happening for you in that day in terms of Groundhog Day. The cynical side of me, Andy says, is that, you know, that this is the collateral damage of a capitalist society and this is the way it goes. And sometimes whilst we, we claim we're a caring society, we build uh, more walls and longer uh, dining tables and you get that nimbus syndrome. And <laughs> when it comes to helping people, you know, you don't actually want stuff in your backyard, but equally, you're quite happy to donate something. I think what's interesting in the UK is, the current stigma campaign that's been run has been run by the Addiction Provider Alliance, which is the NHS. And that isn't necessarily a plug, but the NHS is general health care. So when it starts to, to be anchored to the NHS and a lot of other people have joined that campaign or have got their own campaigns, the NHS is, is sort of a non-destigmatizing healthcare intervention. So it allows where substance misuse is involved with the NHS. It takes that that sting out the word sort of addiction. And I hear people say we need to change the word addiction to a substance misuse disorder. But actually, we need to just take the stigma out the word addiction, in my opinion, because I think whatever word we start to choose to use, you know, it will it'll ca carry connotations. Unfortunately, you know, we aren't going to rest our way out of these problems. And the criminal justice element of it stigmatizes it, in my opinion, in the UK. But we do need to put perhaps a throttle hold on supply, but equally we've got to be careful that we're not just punishing people that have got a dependency issue and driving them to the dark side and the shadow as you spoke about. So that's kind of where I see the land at the moment and the lay of the land. All right, uh, if I may, I'm going to make five <coughs> points. I'm going to make five <laughs> points. There's the beauty of going last is you then get to write your points down and think about <laughs> while other people are talking. So the first one is, um, I'm in my mid 50s. I've been working in this area for 30 years. And I think one of the big things is the field and the industry have changed. The world has changed. And I want to start by saying when I started doing recovery stuff, one of the common criticisms was 
it's a rubbish word because it means nothing. It's too vague, it's too personal, it's too changeable. Um, recovery is a personal journey, it's experiential, so we can't define it. But as Stuart was alluding to, that's a problem we have with all of those words. Whether we talk about substance use disorder, substance abuse, substance dependence, and addiction is probably the classic ones. So our primary journal is still called addiction, in spite of the fact we know it's fundamentally a stigmatising word. And you know the, 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 what it refers to has changed massively. And I, I, I sit frequently with my, my son upstairs thinking, is internet addiction a big issue? Should I be worried about his gaming? And lots of people now worry about gambling. And you know, the, 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 this is a moving feast. And as Stuart alluded to, lots of it relate to underlying issues for which this is a manifestation. I mean, I think there's a danger of saying it's only a manifestation, too much of a simplification. And ultimately for me, you know, I think one of the challenges is addiction ultimately refers to an industry. It basically refers to a whole group and processes of people who choose to categorise, define and claim some kind of knowledge and expertise. And there's a, I'm sure many of you will have read um, Poverty Safari by Darren McGarvey, uh, a Scottish writer who, who, who des describes the poverty industry as that group of people whose mortgages get paid. And I think one of the things for all of us is we have to we have to watch out very clearly that we don't become part of the poverty industry. You know, we don't set up activities and services and processes that are for our convenience rather than the people we're supposed to be working with. And it's a massive risk. And I have a new colleague at Leeds Trinity University, a guy called Andy Brearley, um, who is a youth justice person who himself spent quite a lot of time in youth justice institutions. And he makes exactly the same point about youth justice. You have to be really careful that it doesn't become part of that process. And I, I think for me, addiction really refers to a whole way of conceptualising and managing problems that suit societal needs and professional needs and frequently exclude the individual and all of those structural and uh, barriers. And, you know, uh, people talk all the time about saying, well, the, the, the underlying issues are structural, it's to do with deprivation and inequality and all that. And, and that is very true. But I don't think that's a reason for saying we can't do anything about it. And I'd like to think one of the things that switching to a recovery focus does, which helps with stigma, is attempts to, to, to move some fundamental things. So we move from a pathology focus to a strengths focus. We move from a past focus to a future focus. We move to a focus of what's in your head to what's between people and as a social process. And we fundamentally place community at the heart of the, the, the successful response. So whatever you think of it as a paradigm or a model, what I think it does is it, it attempts to create a destigmatizing model by one saying it's reversible, whatever addiction is, that people can grow, but they can only grow if they're allowed to by the societies and the communities they live in. And so, you know, some of the things that both Gordon Stewart alluded to are really, really important to this. I think we have to understand that as and when people successfully recover and successfully re-engage with their communities, they leave some kind of sprinkle of collective recovery capital and collective efficacy and the communities benefit. And I think that's been the massive change in my career when I started, it was pathologized units. We processed and we 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 had barriers to stop them getting into our in inner bits of our clinic, and we gave them their medication. We processed them through, and I think now it's different. I think the recovery model forces a relational, humanizing, and community focus. And so for me, the answer is ultimately 
it's a it's a constantly shifting field, but it's a constantly shifting field where the re-ownership by communities and the deprofessionalizing of aspects of addiction and recovery should be a hugely encouraging thing. And I just realized I've done a lecture, so I will stop now. <laughs> yeah. And but yeah, just so much in there, but really fantastic. And I I love the bit at the end there, David, talking about that more relational and humanizing. Uh, because that that's that's also been my experience, I think, is really starting to challenge at, you know not i'm not working in a system i'm supporting people you know uh, and 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 i there's a lot of deflection I, I experience sometimes it's like until we resolve this problem until like you were mentioning there to a degree as well as like what you know until we address issues around poverty until we this is happening now yeah and, and like you say from a recovery community i think if i'm really honest i think i was probably a beneficiary of those movements as i got into recovery and meeting lots of people that were visible and there were a lot more connections to be had which absolutely helped me um and i think i seen a video with you gord once where you were you said something about i think it was just a message to people that didn't believe it was possible or wasn't and you just said i disagree in this video there was i'm probably not paraphrasing it well but you kind of said you know i disagree please believe me instead of the kind of what your head's telling you right now you know and i had quite a lot of people around me that were like oh yeah this is but we get this, this happened for us. And that connection permitted a bit of difference really um, and created that field for change, you know, that, that made it possible. And it wasn't an event, it wasn't expectation. I, I wasn't put through a kind of a, a pipeline of this is what you need to do, jump through this hoop, jump through that. I was allowed to connect with people and make sense and meaning of what's happening for me beyond the substance use, which was, which was really Can I touch on that concept to some degree, Andy, in, in terms of our next place here around stigma and its impact and in the recovery community movement and the idea of visible change. Um, and so if we come from a position that people have done their very best in their lives, they've done everything they could and made the decisions they thought would be the best outcome, including the decision that I don't care anymore as an emotional protection when the experience of caring hasn't created change in my life. And so what am I left with? It hurts to care, my care doesn't work for me, so I don't care. And we tell people to get away from us and leave us alone. And they agree, because they don't believe we care anymore. And we know that we do, but it doesn't matter because nothing changed. So in that, as human beings, we learn from our experience and that becomes our rational brain adds one and one together. And what we add up is we don't make it. And then hope in attempts to change become incredibly painful moments and ter terrifying. We get a weekend, eh? Oh my heavens, it won't be long now. And, and God forbid a family member says, you're looking better today. It's like, oh, you're gonna be so upset when I don't make it. I maybe I'll get it over with, right? So this idea that I can see what I have not yet achieved and others, right? And that someone can say to me, you know, of course your brain tells you you're not gonna make it. How else would you know differently from your experience? And so I'm gonna lend you my experience for a little while until you have a different experience. But I want you to know I had the experience of believing that I couldn't change. I had the experience of not making it. I had the experience of hopelessness and I was wrong. And if I'm gonna be wrong about anything, one thing in my life I'd be wrong about, wouldn't it be great if it was wrong about not having a good one? 
And I was wrong about that. What I what would I do next? It's a fundamental question we want to ask all of us in regards to whatever is going on with our lives, right? Whatever is wrong about my doom, what would I do next? I, I've 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 met people kind of on their trajectories and journeys. If I'm honest, experiences a bit myself. It was the idea of having a good life was was quite traumatizing. The idea of that was 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 a frightening concept, and it. it I, it always reminds me of someone. I was sitting outside a hostel once and I was talking to someone and they looked like they had the weight of the world on the shoulders, looked really distressed. And I just sat with them for a minute. I said, kind of, what, what's happening? Are you, are you okay? And they said, oh, they've got me a place in there. And this was, a, this was a guy who'd been rough sleeping. And the idea of being in a hostel was terrifying, but all the professionals around him were celebrating. It's like, brilliant, we've got you a room in the hostel. We can get you off the streets. We can, you know, and there was that concept and this idea that you're going to be safe. You're going to be... It, it wasn't his frame of reference. It wasn't his experience. And I totally understand the professionals wanting to do their best. But in that process, it was like, oh, this is the good life that we've talked about. It's like, whoa, and I, this is really traumatizing. It just really struck me when you were talking there about the, the reality to this as well. And for anyone listening to this as well, I hope there's some validation um, and not just about addiction. I'm sure anyone listening to this can look through that lens, really, um, given time and think about that. Um, Sorry, Stu, did I jump in then or wait? I... No, no I, was, I was just I was just thinking that about what you're saying and how helping can be perceived as violence if you're not careful because you're actually forcing someone. And and that, you know, when when I've, I've looked in up and, you know, worked many years looking at care plans and what's written in the care plan, thinking that's not a client's words, that's not a patient. In fact, that's not a person's words that you're trying to help. That That's a professional response to what you think should be written in there. So it's interesting when you you were both just talking about that, and I was just thinking about addiction. In in back in my addiction, it's a very conditional world as well, and even amongst people with addictions, there's a stigma because you judge yourself. Well, I'm I'm not a heroin addict, or I'm not injecting. So you know, and there's that justification that somehow you're not as bad as something else, which then makes them bad, but you're not as bad. So you didn't commit crime to do it, or or whatever. So. When you look at it that way, I think um, it's interesting. And I think one of the things that I, 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 when God was speaking is that if, if if I was happy, which wasn't in the end of my addiction, I'd use. But if I was sad, I'd use. And you never, you, you use on anything. You use on all feelings, but it's got to be conditional. And going into a situation where you don't actually know the outcome or the result is quite scary. Because actually being familiar and having that Groundhog Day experience day in, day out, is actually a comfort in that. Irony is that you don't you dislike it, and there's part of you saying it could be different. But yeah. you know, it's very fascinating when you look at it. And the very people that probably you could help you are distanced because addiction seen as something that's self-inflicted. And I think anyone that thinks it's self-inflicted is part of the problem. Um, and actually, I, I think I, I'll still um, uh, Professor Best saying that would actually constitute, I believe, negative recovery capital. So it starts to starts to look at that approach of how society becomes part of the problem. Yeah. And and, and is there, you know, like with listening to the three of you talking now, and I'm sure there is, because um, we, we've covered a few things already, but it, is there a silver bullet for this? Is there a, you know, we need to challenge stigma. We need uh, to. Yeah, look, there, there is there is no single silver bullet, and it's been one of the great follies of of, of addiction help treatment 
that people have attempted to go for a silver bullet. And I can remember, uh, I'm sure Gord will remember the, the the days when people got really excited about ultra rapid opiate detox, about filling people full of anaesthetics and and detoxing them with lots and lots of naloxone while they were asleep. And what a truly disastrous idea that was. And I'm still amazed that people talk as if there, there could be magic solutions to this. It's complicated and it's complicated because it happens on so many different levels for people. And even if we take something like stigma, you know, stigma can be considered in in the language Stuart was talking about is negative recovery capital. This part of stigma is an internalized negative personal recovery capital thing about people's self-stigma. They are so badly treated and so badly uh, mistreated and excluded. And particularly from people where you look at, they have a trauma history and they've got uh, been in looked after care, they've been involved in youth justice. They have a whole set of defensive ways of managing and, and mechanizing things that are, are partly determined by the self-stigmatizing attitudes and beliefs. And then, you know, you have the, 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 the stuff that happens, which is to do with how you're treated by your neighbors or your family, which is stigmatizing and excluding. Then there's the level of how you're treated by professionals and all those terrible studies that show people who go into their general practitioner or go into hospital and, and they get treated dreadfully and exclusively there. And then there's another level to this, which is structural stigma, which is, you know, created one of the things in crime, we talk about tertiary desistance and what tertiary desistance means is when society stops preventing you from getting a decent job and living in a decent house and, and engaging, getting to university and all those kind of things. And it seems to me, you know, I, I, having said, I was going to talk positively about recovery things, I've now talked very negatively about, uh, about stigma, but it seems to me that the, the, the notion of saying there's a simplistic experience means you potentially have at least those four levels to work with. Now, we, we have talked, Stuart and I have been involved in the Recovery Cities movement, and I think there's something, there's a potential reverse dynamic you can create. And I go to very, I'm lucky to go to various places around the world, and Recovery Games is a brilliant example, Recovery Walks. The social supermarkets that Dave Hyam runs at the well, the um, uh, the coffee bikes and fork in the road and blooms florists, the the recovery connections run in Middlesbrough. Two or three weeks ago, I was in Michigan, um, where they do the most astonishing reading. Like I, I was at a recovery service where they have their own recovery newspaper called the Recovery Advocate in Ann Arbor, and it, you know everywhere you go, there are these astonishing acts of hope connection that creates that challenges some of those stigmas and exclusions you know so i think we shouldn't be overcome by this because it, it feels fundamentally to me like that the, the joy of that contagion process is watching people in recovery inspire that hope and belief that other people can change but also that it can create the cascade in professionals to rehumanize them and one of the things I've started writing recently is a, a kind of worker version of the recovery capital measure, because the assumption is different. The assumption in a recovery organisation isn't that there's some kind of po-faced, austere, not quite there professional who dispenses magic dust and wisdom. The idea is it's a genuine relationship where both people get better and both and the outcome for both people should be what you measure, not just for the outcome for the person who, who kind of wanders in through the door. And that whole notion of collective well-being, I think, is fundamental. And I've no idea what the question was, Andy, but answer some <laughs> question. 
Yeah, and you've probably answered loads. I was going to ask David, so that'll do. That'll, that that that's fantastic. But what stood out, to, what what really stood out for me again, it's back to that kind of humanistic, relational, um, and the connectivity and that that community as well. That that visibility and the onus as well is 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 what can I do? So for anyone listening, what can I do? Um, yes, yeah, Stuart. Yeah, I mean, just back to what David said, and, and he used the word clinical fallacy, and I think you see it in services. If all you see is broken people coming through the door needing your help, you never see that well-being. And I think that's been the beauty about some of the lived experience movement coming in, because we disempower, you know, one of the most underutilised assets in, in the helping relationship is the person sat in front of you. And we don't give people credence for that ability. If they redirect that um, addiction into something positive, or healthy, the sky's the limit. And I think when we, we in our in, in Aspire, we we do volunteer and mentoring program. We give people real pr proper opportunities as volunteers in a trained program, an accredited program. They don't just stand at the front door handing out tea and toast. They really get involved in everything. There's a good val that's that's valid as well. Don't be wrong. Informal informal patient centred or you know people centred services. Because I think you know and, and and I was given this the other day and 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 it was about. You know, services services where where uh, client centred. No, we're not. We're system centred. We never have been client centred. And when you look at it, Leros or um, sort of mutual aid is very very person centred. And actually, I love that language. And Dot, I never heard it before. Dot said it. The thing with lived experience and people in recovery is they'll 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 love you until you can learn to love yourself. Whereas in services, we're very much outcome output, and it's back to that that relationship about being measured. I, I was just going to say, God, and that's when I'm doing presentations, I really try and get that. You know that phrase there, Stu, about learning to love you until you love yourself. That really fits the developmental kind of trauma side to this. Is, you know, with all the stigma, with all the internalised messages, how, are you, how am I going to love myself if I've got this barrage of what is not OK about being me right now? So whilst I'm processing through that, if you hold that place for me, it's, it's like a resource um, a connective resource. So yeah, absolutely. Sorry, Gord. I, yeah. No, no. I, you know, so I, I had a, I, at some point in my life, I had a lot of people in front of me that I th experienced their kindness and I thought they remained kind to me. And I looked up about a year later and kind of got a little less self-centered and realized they weren't being kind to me. They were practicing kindness and I got in front of them. <laughs> and, Brilliant. and so what is that that's that unconditional piece i wasn't very likable you know i thought all these people were very stupid and sometimes i would leak out in the conversation right so it wasn't like they liked me right but they were kind even though i wasn't likable they were kind even though i was inconsistent and inconsiderate and often unavailable Right, they're kind despite the fact that I stunk. The fact that I was actively using and shaking and shivering and trying to figure out how to get to their wallet. They, yeah. they, right, I couldn't let them down. See, sometimes we forgot that who we let ourselves, who we, who did we let down in their lives? Who was great most disappointed with us? And I could go through a list of a lot of people who were disappointed in me. You have no idea how disappointed I was at myself. I had intended to lead a good life. I had intended to be a good neighbor and a good friend and a good partner. Those, you know, when you go to a treatment center, there's never any moral class, right? You never sit down and people tell you what right and wrong is and teach you that stuff. You know why? 
Okay, we already know that. So this primal brain stuff that goes on with us, this idea that I'm trying to save myself from what? Well, from my memories, from my fears, from my future, from this moment. And so this taking of a substance, eh? This is a great victory. That was close. I almost remembered. That was close. I almost felt all that pain. And we become convinced that our memories and our fears for the future and our pain in this moment will kill us. Yeah. And we yeah. act as if that's true. And I, 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 you've seen the movie The Titanic. You know about the boat, right? Yeah. Anyway, I don't want to spoil the movie, right? But anyways, you know about the orchestra. So when I was a young person, there was a movie like that, and I saw the orchestras playing, and I swore that when I grew up, I would be a band member. I was going to be noble, and if there's ever a tragedy, I would play the music, and the others would get away. Right? But when I grew up, I became the person throwing the kids out of the life raft and climbing in. You know, so that self-hatred, eh? that condemnation of self, that inability to understand how the kid who wanted to play in the band became the person throwing the other ones out of the way. Mm. Right? That mystery mm. to myself, to my friends, to my family. And so I think a lot of the research we're doing now, a lot of the understanding about some of this stuff, it is complex. But I've yet to see a child get up in grade five and say, I want to grow up and not live to my ideals. I want to grow up and betray everybody, including myself. I want to grow up and not have control over my life. And a really important, like, humanistic frame of reference around this. I, I for years, I was taught, and you, you may agree or di disagree with this. When I, I used to kind of talk to people about addiction as an activity, it's not an identity. It's not, you know, it, it's just something that happens. It's something that people. And I remember that, like, as you were describing there, Gord. It says. To, to a degree for me, it's a survival mechanism. I, there was, there was a, 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 a key worker that said to me years ago that they, they, their take on me was that substances had saved my mental health, you know, put me into a stasis while I was figuring stuff out. And I, I never quite got my head around it, but I, I, I was working, I think, do you know, I, I know what you're aiming at though, because what I was trying to do on a daily basis was live inside that self-perpetuating cycle that you described there um, that was happening. So, and of course, a really valid point, and we, we haven't got time to cover it today, is, is the impact on everyone else, you know, um, that kind of holistic approach. So it, it feels like there's definitely a, a part two in the making um, for this for this clan on this podcast. Um, before we leave, though, I, 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 I do ask people kind of what comes across without doubt is is knowledge, experience, passion um, for, for the kind of field that we find ourselves in. Um, how do you do it? How do you, for people listening out there, you know, how, you know, at the beginning, kind of introducing yourselves and it, it feels like we could, we could do the kind of count of like, you know, years here and years there and years there. And I've worked in the sector. We've got some, some years of experience on this, on this podcast today. How have you nurtured and looked after yourselves through this process? Because it can pull the heartstrings. It can, you know, I've had to bite my lip in meetings. I've had to, you know, manage emotional kind of processes throughout all of this um any for anyone listening out there have you got any top tips anything that you've kind of found okay yeah I, if you don't mind i'll go first on this because I, I i want to say two things about this one generic one very personal so the first generic thing is for me 
no different from the people we've been talking about in the world we've been talking about. It's fundamentally about relationships. It's about creating those radius of trust and doing things that make you feel better about other people and make you feel better for yourself. And and I love Gord's point about kindness. And for me, I've worked in, in academia for a number of years, not a place that's renowned for honesty, decency, respect or trust, where backstabbing is kind of currency. And working with people in recovery and working with recovery organisations, watching some of this thing has just been transformative for me. The one piece of piece of life adv advice I wouldn't give people, which I'm a journey I'm just about to embark on, and Stuart is smirking because he knows what I'm going to say. <laughs> I'm now sufficiently old; I don't know how old I am. So I'm either 55 or 92, and I'm just about to have a baby. Well, actually, not not me personally, but my partner is just about to have a baby, and so um, my capacity for self care will be nurtured by by childhood at a very surprising stage in my life. So always. Um, embrace the miracle, I guess, is my second piece of advice. <laughs> yeah, and, and congratulations, David. That's good. That's good. amazing news. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, thanks very much. You did that with less of a laugh than Mr. Green managed. <laughs> I'm just trying to hold off the traumatic nights of like getting up with children and the, and the most amazing thing. And, and 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 if I'm really honest, something that really does it it makes me glow thinking that. I, I, you know, the intergenerational cycle for me is being broken. I've got two kids and I'm, you know, the, just the wonders of all of that stuff and the availability and the difference. So uh, an amazing process. So whenever I hear people talking about kind of families and children, it, it brings that glow because it, it means a hell of a lot to me. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank um, you so much, Andy. Yeah. Um, uh, Gord. Uh, any any kind of top tips, health, well-being? You, 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 it sounds like from your introduction as well, you're involved in so much, quite a catalyst for a lot happening as well, um, and, and a, a big part in communities. How do you look after yourself? So it's kind of funny, you, you know. Uh, I made a commitment to practice compassion and, and attempt to be kind, and I'm not very good at it. So, uh, but I practice. And I ask myself the question, right? Am I acting in kindness? Am I being considerate? If I'm seeking power, right? I can't be considerate and it's hard to be kind because people are in my way. If I'm yeah. seeking kindness, that's something I can do through self-determination. And then I'm well, right? And uh, the person in front of me would at least have an opportunity. They may not experience it, but would be in front of them to experience if they chose to someone being kind towards them. Yeah, and yeah. often that's towards people who have harmed me in the past and organizations that have harmed me in the past. And kindness then I realize is a choice. Right? And it's not based on the others, it's based on self. There's a lot of self-determination in that, and and it's a model that uh, assures me when I go to bed tonight and I try to sleep, and when I put my head down, I I, I can tell myself, oh, you know, you did a pretty good job of being kind today. And as a result of that, I become influential. But I didn't set off to be influential. I set off to be kind, and I remind myself every every morning when I wake up, no, don't be too important today. Okay. It's not about you. And it's not about power. Can you simply be with the others? 
and you just do that for another day, Lord. And then I go off and I'm not very good at it, but I notice when I'm not and I fix it up a bit and move on. Mm. That's really fantastic. So authentic, Gordon. It, it reminds me when I was training as a therapist and they often talked about the contact boundary. They talked about where you meet the world and having that reflective capacity and that that choice and understanding about what you choose to do and how you carry yourself and um yeah, it reminds me of like a, a someone I once heard present on like culture carrying. It's like, you know, carry that culture, be that thing, you know. Um, yeah, thank you for that, Gord. That I go really to the nice. grocery store every day and see if I can just be there with the others or whether they're in front of me at the cashier. Because, <laughs> no, right? That's yeah. how my, my brain goes, oh, there's a big line up in front of me. Well, they're not in front of me. They're just buying their groceries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah I, absolutely I that place can i be with the others and that's where i go to practice at the grocery store <laughs> i and i'll tell you folks every day i go my first thought is ah oh, they're yeah. in front of me and it's like no they're not no they're not but groceries yeah. yeah 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 it's a practice there you go if you're listening out there if you're in a supermarket today you will know where you're at when you stand in that queue are all the people in there shopping with you or should you be at the front because they're in your way? That's what, a, yeah, what a great tool. <laughs> and that's, I think that's the laughter of recognition from me, God. I'm thinking, oh God, um, I can certainly get a sense check on my day when I'm standing in that queue. Um, and Stuart, I mean, I've seen the pictures on social media. You're out and about, you're at one with nature. Uh, yeah, what do you do? Um, I, I, you know, I've known you in the sector as well. So how do you look after yourself? Well, first of all, I look for that 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 checkout that's about to open and try and queue jump into the front of the the checkout that's about to open. I I can really <laughs> echo that queue in front of it. And actually, you know, they're all buying the food. Well, fuck God. I mean, uh, for me, and I think there's two things. I, I I've tried to build a life that I don't need a holiday from. So for me, you know, stuckness is a real a danger area. I can live with it today because I've learned that when you get a grenade and you pull the pin out, what you don't do is throw the pin and hang on to the grenade. You're supposed to throw the grenade and hang on to the pin. And in a previous life, I was throwing the pin away and that's why things were going wrong. So what 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 I've learned today is that to sit with stuff and I always I always think of like, you know, stuff like Apollo 13 when they're coming down and they're all bouncing around the capsule, but nothing's changed. So it's just about how how you deal with that. I think the other bit is is and David David um, touched on this and certainly certainly said some stuff about it. So it's the tribe you roll with and it very much depicts who and what you stand for. Um, could would I have this day one in recovery? I couldn't carry it. Um, I'll be honest. I think it's it's a journey. You can't just wheel out a pop up um, recovery. You can't do it. it you grow. And I think what I've learned is put my hand up to do stuff. And it, usually the dividends it pays back um, aren't what you expect. It's something else. But that validation, and I think Cormac talks about it, it's only a gift and what, uh, it's only a gift once someone receives it and says thank you. And it's that conditional stuff, the relationship stuff. And I think that's sometimes why people in recovery want to put something back. And I remember a client once saying to me, if I don't put it back um, and help you in, you know, doing a bit of duty in terms of new beginnings, I feel like I'm stealing something. And and mm. I, I kind of like that, that, that kind of people have to have a value and a, a stake in their own health. 
Mm. And, and I think that's really important. So what what keeps me well, I, I love my motorbike at the minute um, and get out and about. And I, I love getting out around the village. And I'm fortunate that um, my parents have got to know me as who I am. And mm. and there's a vulnerability in being kind. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that uh, it's a sign of weakness. It's actually what that person does with that that vulnerability. And, and, and that's back to the conditional stuff, because I think often you expect people to react a certain way when you behave a certain way towards them you've got no, no you can only you can only keep your side of the garden tidy and behave in that way how they respond is is their business yeah. and that's how yeah. i see it so i think you, you just end up in guessing games but i mean like today's been absolutely blown away you know um some great friends here on the line and it's great to to connect again yeah yeah Absolutely. Uh, and I would echo that. And thank you. Yeah, thanks for that, Stu. Um, and it, it, again, it just echoes that point, doesn't it, about being malleable, being reflective, just rolling with what is and, you know, having that capacity and not assuming that you have to have that capacity from day one. Because like you were saying, I suppose some of the honesty that my friends give me today would have sent me spiraling into a vortex of shame, you know, years and years ago, because it was just so it was so kind of thick and deep within me. But, you know, I've grown into that. Uh, with the help of lots of other people so yeah i would echo that so all that's left for me to do is is thank all three of you uh, so much for this it's been absolutely amazing um amazing insight and i'm sure we could have talked for hours really um, um and rightly so with the experience that, that you've all got so yeah this is the recovery talks podcast um, i've been speaking with gord david and stuart um i hope you've enjoyed it i hope you've enjoyed listening um we've certainly kind of had a good time um just chatting some of this through um, so yeah, thanks a lot guys. Recovery Talks is a podcast from Changing Lives, hosted by Andy Ryan, Summer Stringer, Francis Donnelly and Laura McIntyre, and edited by me, Bridget Hamilton. This is season four and you can find more than 30 previous episodes by searching Recovery Talks on iTunes, Spotify or Anchor FM. For more information about what Changing Lives does or to access any of their services, visit www.changing-lives.org.uk. Thank you.